Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, picking up where we left off last week. For uh, many of you, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for many, many weeks, some 30-something weeks now, and uh, we're coming in on the last two. So this week and next week, we're going to finish it out. And so uh, we're going to be in the final portion of chapter 14 and actually move into chapter 15. And uh, you're like, well, what about chapter 16? We covered chapter 16 at Easter, so you all just have to go back online to see that one. But uh, this morning, we're going to look at on trial. Uh, Jesus is on trial. And as we've uh, left last week, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying, and Judas came up and betrayed him with a kiss. And he's now been arrested, and he goes before uh, the trial. Now, I realize that as we get into this section of Scripture, for many of us, uh, these are familiar stories. And these are stories that maybe we've read uh, several times. And maybe as you get into the trial section of these Scriptures, you kind of read through it, knowing where it's going. Um, but, but imagine hearing this for the first time. As I was studying this week and as I was looking at different things, I was uh, in, the, in the book called Jesus Freaks. It's a story about martyrs. There's a story there about a jubilant dance for Jesus, and it's about a Russian captain, and uh, it's from the 1940s, and the pastor who was there writes this. When I was still living behind the Iron Curtain, I had met a Russian captain. He loved God. He longed after God, but he had never seen a Bible. He had never attended a religious service. He had no religious education, but he loved God without the slightest knowledge of him. I read to him the Sermon on the Mount and the parables of Jesus. And after hearing them, he danced around the room in rambunctious joy, proclaiming, what a wonderful beauty. How could I live without knowing Christ? It was the first time I saw someone jubilating for Christ. Now, I was wanting to have someone come up here and act out the story as I was reading it, but I couldn't find any volunteers. So do I have a volunteer? No volunteers. Okay, let's keep reading then. He said, then I made the mistake. I read to him the passion of the crucifixion of Christ without having prepared him for this. He had not expected it. When he heard how Christ was beaten, how he was crucified, and that in the end he died, he fell in an armchair and began to weep bitterly. He had believed in a Savior, and now his Savior was dead. I looked at him and was ashamed that I had called myself a Christian, a pastor, a teacher of others, and I had never shared in the sufferings of Christ as this Russian officer had shared them. Looking at him was like, for me, seeing Mary Magdalene weeping at the foot of the cross and at the empty tomb. Then I read to him the story of the resurrection. When he heard this wonderful news that the Savior arose from the tomb, he slapped his knee and shouted for joy, He's alive! He's alive! That's better, right? And he danced around the room. Anybody? No? Okay. We're Baptist. He danced around the room, overwhelmed with happiness, and said, Let us pray. He fell on his knees together with me. He did not know our holy phrases. His words were this, Oh God, what a fine chap you are. If I were you and you were me, I would never have forgiven you of your sins, but you are really a nice chap. I love you with all of my heart. I think the angels in heaven stopped what they were doing and they listened to this sublime prayer by this Russian officer when this man received Christ. He knew 
that he would immediately lose his position as an officer, that prison and perhaps death in jail would almost surely follow. He gladly paid that price. He was ready to lose everything for Christ. As we read this morning, we see that it's Jesus being put on trial and Peter is beginning to be faced with making a choice between proclaiming Christ and denying Christ. Because to proclaim Christ at that moment would certainly cost him his life. It would put him on trial as well. But Peter, later on in life, writes these words. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation for your souls. Church, this morning, do you love them? Do you love them? Exactly. Exceeding joy this morning. As we read through the trial of Jesus, it's easy for us to see it as a story, but man, we have a Savior, a Savior who is willing to go through every bit of this for our salvation. So let's pray, shall we? Father, we do come to you this morning. Though we've not seen you, we rejoice. Father, we do know you because of your word, and we believe in you. We put our faith in you, and Father, we thank you for salvation that comes through your son, Jesus Christ, that you would be willing to come to live in the flesh, to live a perfect life, the life that we can't live, and that you would die in our place so that we could have everlasting life. (laughs) What a fine chap you are. Father, thank you so much for the gift of forgiveness and grace. In Christ's name, amen. On trial, as we pick up in verse 53 this morning, you'll see the first thing is on trial for the identity of Christ. Jesus is going on trial, and he's actually going on trial for his identity. So verse 53, you can follow along with me. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Jesus is on trial. And if we put the story together and we look at all four Gospels, in fact, he actually goes through six trials, three religious trials and three civil trials within a matter of hours. Now, we know that Jesus was probably arrested sometime around midnight, one o'clock in the morning on Thursday or early Friday morning. He's then taken to uh, 
this house that we see that's uh, Caiaphas's house. Annas and Caiaphas are both there. And he's being put on trial. And you weren't allowed to be put on trial during the nighttime. And so this is an illegal trial that's going on, but they're trying to speed things along so that they can get him to pilot early in the morning so they can get this thing done. So Jesus is arrested. He's taken there. It's two, three o'clock in the morning, and he's standing trial. On the night Jesus was arrested, he was brought before Annas and Caiaphas, an assembly of religious leaders called the Sanhedrin. After this, he was taken before Pilate, the Roman governor, sent to Herod, and then returned to Pilate, where finally he was sentenced to death. John records it this way in chapter 18, verses 12 and 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one, of, that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas is there. He's the ruling high priest. His father-in-law, Annas, who's a former high priest, they have such power and control over the area. They are holding this secret meeting. And what MacArthur says is it's like a first century mafia family. Annas and his sons controlled the lucrative temple operations, including money changing and the sale of sacrificial animals. Jesus disturbed the corrupt enterprise when he single-handedly evacuated the temple earlier that week. So if you put these pieces together, you can see that Jesus has totally disrupted their money-making scheme on religion. He's flipped over tables. He's ran everybody out, and now they're going to get him back. They're going to put him on trial. They're holding a trial. They're trying to find witnesses to agree on something that would make him guilty. But you know what? It's really hard to find something wrong with a sinless man. And so none of their lies are matching up. They can't quite find anything to accuse him of. And so all this is happening. And the last time we saw Peter, Peter was cutting off an ear of a, of, a, of a young man, maybe an intern, right? He cut it off, Jesus heals it, and then he runs away. And so now the story picks up, and Mark records this, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and, it was, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. The ones that he was going to fight earlier, he's now warming himself by the fire with. He's sitting there, and I don't know why Peter's there. Maybe Peter knows, look, I, I told you that I wasn't going to deny you. Even if all of these fall away, I will not fall away. Even if I have to die, I won't deny you. And Jesus says those words, oh, Peter, you will deny me three times. You will before the rooster crows. And so he's there. He's hanging on. He's trying to do the very best that he can. And so he's there warming himself, and what we learn is that following Jesus at a distance leads to denying Jesus. Those who choose to follow Jesus at a distance will eventually deny Jesus. Peter wanted to be faithful. He wanted to hold up his end of the deal. He wanted to be faithful and say, look, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. But he also wanted to be comfortable. And sometimes when we want to be faithful and comfortable, comfortable wins over faithful. Am I right? When we follow Jesus at a distance, we set ourselves up for denying Jesus. Following Jesus at a comfortable distance by trying to fit in with a crowd will destroy our faithfulness. This is where many people find themselves today. Following Jesus at a distance and trying to fit in with a crowd. It reminds me of bandwagon fans. You know what a bandwagon fan is? I'll give you the definition just in case. 
bandwagon fans are defined as sports fans who have shown no past loyalty to a team and who only support them when they are doing well. That reminds me of a few years back when all of a sudden in Tennessee, there was all kinds of Seattle Seahawks fans. You know, like all these people began to wear Seattle Seahawks hats and jerseys, and they're like, yeah, I, man, I've been, a, I've been a Seahawks fan for years. And I was like, you don't even know where Seattle is. I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know, this is kind of like those people, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm jumping on. Well, sometimes there's people who jump on the bandwagon of being a follower of Jesus because, oh, this is good, this is great. And after a while, they begin to distance themselves from Jesus because things aren't as good as they once were. Do you know what I'm talking about? So bandwagon followers is what we'll call them. They're distant followers of Jesus who follow Jesus only when it is beneficial and comfortable, but deny Jesus at a distance when it is unpopular or controversial. Franklin Graham talks about this, and he says, Many Christians in America today want to follow Jesus at a distance. They want to give themselves a little room. They want to watch which way the wind will blow and see what the end will be. When Jesus is portrayed in a good light, when it's comfortable, they will stand up next to him. But if Jesus is going to be mocked or cursed or insulted, they want to stay back until they know things will go, how things will go. Way before Franklin Graham wrote those words, Jonathan Edwards wrote these. Many Christians today are following Christ from a distance, desiring to sap all his benefits, but unwilling to bear his reproach. This spirit of self-preservation will inevitably lead to denying Christ when the heat is on. For reputation and comfort will be of greater value than the praise of God and eternal reward. I want to point out something real quick that Jonathan Edwards says in this quote. The spirit of self-preservation will inevitably lead to denying Christ. Just take that. And when, when the heat is turned up about being associated with the identity of Christ, if the heat is turned up in our lives, if self-preservation is our main goal, then we set ourselves up for denying. And this is where Peter is. Peter, Peter wants to follow. He wants to be faithful. He's at a distance, but self-preservation at this point in his life is way more important than being identified with Christ. So he's following at a distance. We go on and we read there that they couldn't get their testimonies to agree. And in verse 60, the high priest stood up Caiaphas in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is that that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas, he begins to turn up the heat and begins to cross-examine in this trial and if you've ever seen a cross-examination or a lawyer just berate somebody who's on trial, eventually they just kind of, okay, just, just let me answer something. But Jesus is quiet. He's hearing all these accusations that aren't lining up. And Jesus doesn't have to say anything because Jesus doesn't have to defend himself because Jesus has never done anything wrong. He's sinless. And it reminds us of what Isaiah says. These are the verses we read during worship this morning. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before the shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus silently stood there under trial until Caiaphas pushes him enough to say, answer this question, are you the son of God? 
And he responds, I am. These words Jesus has used numerous times, and they identify him as God. We read these in Exodus. Okay, there he is. We read these in Exodus chapter 3, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is on trial for his identity. And when he is asked, is this your identity? He says, I am. I am God in the flesh. Before Abraham was, I am. He also says, I am the son of man. I'm coming on the clouds. This, he speaks back to Psalms 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, God says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now get this picture. He's being berated by the high priest. He's being yelled at. He's been arrested. He's been, he's been you know, tied up. And he says, and you know what? I will sit at the right hand of the father and my enemies will be my footstool. Who's his enemies at that point? He also says, I'll be coming on the clouds, which goes back to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is on trial, and he's being asked, is this your identity? And he's saying, yes, it is. And by the way, uh, I came from heaven, and I'm going back to heaven, and I'm going to come back again one day. This is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm letting you know that this will not be the last time we meet at a trial. Because when I return, I'm going to return as a judge who has complete authority. And I will judge you based on your identity as a sinner. So let me just pause right there and say that those who are not covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, who have not accepted him as Lord and Savior, you stand condemned for the sins that are in your life. And we must all surrender those to him and ask him for forgiveness so that we can have everlasting life. And so he says, look, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be the judge. And those who are not covered by the blood of the Lamb... You'll be held accountable for your identity. And the high priest, after hearing this, he tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They began to deny him of his lordship. When he testifies to who he really is, they reject it. They reject who he really is. They reject his lordship. And it says they begin to strike him. They put something over his head so he couldn't see. And when it says strike in the Greek, it means that with a closed fist, they began to punch him in the face. Prophesy, who just hit you? Who just hit you? You tell us. Imagine this is going on to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's taking these blows, and yet he's silent. They were denying him, and they chose to reject, his, reject him as the Messiah. You know, most people, when they reject Jesus, they don't have a picture of this. Most people who deny the lordship of Jesus in their life do so because they don't want Jesus telling them what they can and cannot do. Oh, I would never be aggressive. I would never be 
rude. I would never, I just don't want him telling me what I can and can't do. I just don't want him judging me. I don't want to, I don't want to feel that way, but you see, they reject him. And then what's the next step to rejection? Aggression. And some began to spit on him. How degrading. The Lord who created the heavens and the earth is being spit upon by his own creation. They began to strike him. They began to receive him with blows. You see, rejecting the lordship of Jesus progresses into attacking the person of Jesus. And this is, this is how we see it. People begin to attack. Uh, he's not my Lord. And when they begin to attack the person of Jesus, it's not long before they begin to attack the people of Jesus. Don't be surprised if they hate you too because they hated me. That's what Jesus would say. People who reject the lordship of, lordship of Jesus they will be eventually become aggressive towards the person of Jesus and the people of Jesus. People attack Jesus when they don't want to be held accountable to Jesus. So whether we know it or not, Jesus is on trial in our hearts today. We all have to decide if he really is Lord or not. We all have to decide, is he the I am? Is he the one that can speak truth into my life and tell me what I'm doing is right or wrong? Is he the one that can, that can condemn me for the sins that are in my life or not? Today, many are aggressively against Jesus because they believe he isn't allowed to judge them. They believe they can live how they want. They can act how they want, be who they want, pick what gender they want. And not even Jesus can judge them on that. The rejection of Jesus by some has caused many to revert to aggression towards Jesus. We're seeing in our society a more aggressive nature towards Jesus Christ. And as believers, let me tell you, church, we're going to experience that. Because those who attack the person of Christ will also attack the people of Christ. And this is where we see Peter come back into the, into the story. Peter is identified as being with Christ, and so they begin to attack him on trial for being identified with Christ. So let's read, starting there in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Verse 69, and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Jesus is there. He's being, he's being accused. He's being beat. He's being uh, put on trial. And Peter's out there warming himself by the fire, trying to fit in. And all of a sudden, they begin to say, hey, look, you look like him. You act like him. You sound like him. You had to be with him. No, 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 no. I'm not going to be identified with Christ because that, that's bad for me right now. John Stott, he says this, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. There's a clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Those who value Jesus Christ as Lord and the world. It's irreconcilable. No matter what you do to try to reconcile the world and its ways with, with Christ and his ways, it won't, it won't happen. And so that creates 
friction. That creates persecution. This clash is what we're seeing in the world today. There's a clash between two irreconcilable value systems in our media, in our entertainment, in our political and judicial systems, in our culture, in our community, in our homes, in our workplaces. Many of us are beginning to see that there's a clash and there's a friction that's beginning to take place because those of us who name the name of Christ, Christians, Christ-like, we're beginning to be pointed out. This clash is ultimately between those who believe, trust, and love Jesus and those who do not. Those who hold Jesus as the ultimate value in their life. Why is this happening? Our value system influences our identity and thus impacts our thinking choices and our behavior. So the thing that you value most helps you identify who you are. And when you identify who you are, that then feeds into the way you think, the way you make choices, and the behaviors you function in. If the lordship of Jesus Christ becomes the highest value in your life, you find your identity hidden in him. And when your identity is hidden in Christ because of what he's done, it is thus going to change your behaviors and your attitudes and your actions. But if you reject Jesus as Lord and you elevate your value system of self or something else, then you're going to find your identity in, well, this is who I am. This is, this is how God made me or something like that. And you're going to say, this is it. And therefore, your conduct and your behavior and your actions are going to go contrary to the word of God. Does that make sense? So when what we value ultimately isn't identified, isn't the identity and unity of Christ, we are at odds with others. This is why Paul, especially in the New Testament, writes to churches over and over and over, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Why are you acting like this? amongst each other. You should be, your ultimate value as the body of Christ should be the Lord and, and his identity, not in your own preferences and own things that you want and what you think is best. And so why is there fighting and quarrels among you? There should be a value system where Christ supersedes all other values. But when we value self over the Savior, there's an unavoidable clash in our conduct. There's an unavoidable clash in our conduct. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a clash between value systems. Colossians 3, 1 through 3, Paul writes again, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your identity is is found in Christ. We are hidden from the judgment and the wrath of God in Christ. Therefore, our lives should reflect that identity and that reality as the ultimate value of our lives. So Peter's there trying to hide himself in the crowd, but he's warming himself by the fire. Peter's life was hidden with Christ, and he tries to hide it from others by his words and his actions. Here's what's interesting, though. They know. Let me tell you, the crowds know when you're his. When you are a son or a daughter of the Most High because of what Jesus Christ has done in your heart and in your life, you can't hide it. People are going to know. And Peter was below the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest. This, this, the way the Greek is worded here is like this this she has no authority she's the lowest of the lows and she's the one that's going to point this out and he's scared of her and peter's there warming himself 
by the fire. And she looked at him. You're, you're one of them. You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Scripture doesn't tell us what Peter's motives were or why he's there. But you've got to give it up for Peter. I mean, think about that. That's pretty bold. He's going into this house where there's, there's an illegal trial going on. He's seeing Jesus be beat. And he's still there hanging out with the soldiers around the fire. And, the, and, and, and you just don't know why, but it does show us and gives us an important object lesson of how we can often find ourselves surrounded by people who are hostile to Christ. And in order to fit in, we compromise our faith, our values, and our morals. We easily begin to say, oh, maybe I should try to fit in here. This term warming himself means, means toward the light. So she's actually able to see his, his appearance because he's close to the light. He's not hiding in the darkness. Just like the light of the fire illuminated Peter's physical identity, the light of Christ illuminates our spiritual identity. We can't hide who we are in Christ. John 1, 4 through 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ is the light that overcomes the darkness in all of us. We all should draw near to the light, expose the darkness, reveal our identity in Christ, and be met by the warmth and the forgiveness of his grace. Peter is there. And what the Bible teaches us is while Peter is denying his identity in Christ, Jesus is confirming his identity as the Christ. This has simultaneously happened that Jesus is able to stand under the midst of such pressure even when we fail. When we are faithless, he is faithful. But he denied it. Saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Jonathan Edwards says this way, a change in place is no substitute for a change of heart. Peter's looking for an escape. He's looking for a change of scenery. He's looking to, well, let me just buy myself some time here. But changing his scenery doesn't change his heart. First Peter 4, 16, he would later write, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter's saying, look, I ran away from the name of Christ and being identified with Christ, but if you get the opportunity, don't you dare try to leave the situation. You stand up for the glory of God. That's exactly what he's saying here. Often, when we know that we're struggling with a sin and temptation, we try to remedy the sin by removing ourselves from the situation. Am I right? That's smart. But sin is not birthed in the situation. It's birthed in our hearts, and, it re and it's revealed in the situation. So if all we do is try to remove ourselves in the situation, but we never deal with the root sin that's in our hearts, we're just buying time until the next time it comes up. Typically, we don't want to deal with the heart of sin. We just want to avoid the situations of sin. I don't really want to change. I just don't want to get caught in that situation. That approach to sin only buys us a little time until the next situation. Behavior modification does, not, does nothing to change our hearts. Behavior modification is not sustainable. The servant girl, verse 69, saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said, to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man or whom you speak of. 
And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. This broke Peter. It broke Peter to weep. This word in the Greek means to mourn, to lament, to wail with an external expression of deep anguish. It's also the word that was used for people who were professional mourners at funerals, that they would, they would get loud and they would weep and they would cry loudly. And this is the picture of what happens when Peter realizes that I've denied Jesus Christ. He is broken by his sin. This is more than feeling guilty and feeling ashamed. This is more than feeling upset or disappointed in yourself. It's the grieving repentance of sadness. Do you weep over your sin, church? When you deny Christ, does it break you? Does denying Christ with your actions break your heart? As Luke records this, he gives an interesting observation. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He looked at him. I love how the Passion of the Christ depicts this part. I don't know if you remember that from the movie, but they make eye contact. Jesus is under trial. He's being beat. He's being accused, and he just looks at Peter as Peter's denying him. Sinclair Ferguson says that look was to be his salvation, for he saw in those eyes not condemnation, but compassion. I've got great news for you, church. For those of us who are in Jesus Christ, he is faithful when we are faithless. When we deny him and when we struggle with sin, he looks on us not with condemnation but with compassion because he covered us with his very own blood. Amen? For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were hopeless, we were helpless, and without Christ we could do nothing to remedy the fact that we were dying and going to hell. It's Jesus. He's on trial, and the trial moves from there to Pilate. They probably met early that morning around 6 a.m. to come up with a verdict to get Jesus taken to Pilate by 7 a.m. because Pilate would want to take care of all of his business before noon. Um, he, you know, he only worked half days, right? So he wanted to get all that stuff done and then enjoy his afternoon. And so they're, they're pushing to get this done. They don't want the crowds to catch on to what's happened over the night. So Jesus is on trial, and Pilate is on trial for refusing to accept the identity of Christ. Let's read Mark 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest had a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Verse 6, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered to them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released. 
to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. There's one interesting statement about Pilate in the trial with him face-to-face with Jesus Christ. It says that he was wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate is looking at the creator of the universe face-to-face, and rather than please God, he would rather please the crowd. Let me tell you, that is where the vast majority of people are today. Jesus is on trial in their heart, and they have to decide, do I want to please the crowd, or do I want to please my Savior, my Creator? Do I want to please Him, or do I want to please the crowd? Pilate sought a compromise instead. Well, let me just see if I can win here. Let me see how I can get out of this and not kill Jesus, but also compromise the crowd. And he would rather seek compromise over truly knowing Christ. He had an opportunity to have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus. Can you imagine that opportunity? The opportunity to say, I want to know you. I want to know they're calling you the king of the Jews. Can you tell me who you really are? And he just wants to compromise. He just wants to get past this situation. He wants to get out of the, the, the spot he's in because he's caught in the middle of religion and reality. He's caught in the middle of this religion where these religious people are saying, you need to crucify him. You need to crucify him. This is what we want. This is what we do. And reality is that Jesus is standing right there. And Pilate knew Jesus had been handed over by the religious leaders out of envy And he knew the reality was that Jesus was innocent, but instead of standing for what he knew to be true, he appealed to the crowds and the popular opinion. So many times, instead of standing for what we know to be true, we compromise for the crowds and popular opinion. Like Pilate, we often are more about the crowd's opinion. We care more about it than we do standing for truth. So we choose compromise over Christ. And here's what we learned from this story. If you believe that you can live in the middle ground of Christian compromise, you will eventually be made to choose a side, not only by Christ, but also by the crowd. If you believe that you can ride the fence line of Christianity, you're eventually going to be made to choose either by Christ or by the crowd. No one gets to ride the fence of Christianity. No one gets to ride the middle ground. No one gets to try to make a compromise with their beliefs. No, it's either he's Lord of your life or he's not Lord of your life. Jesus is on trial for his identity. Peter was facing a trial because he was identified with the identity of Christ. And Pilate here, he's on trial because he rejects the identity of Christ. He rejects it. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released to them, Barabbas, instead. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released him, then Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I don't have time to get into the scourging of Jesus. The historical um, commentaries and, and things that are written about the scourging from Josephus are just gruesome. The scourgings that would disembowel humans and it would pull back the flesh until there were strings of flesh hanging from their bodies and all their bones on their backs were exposed. Jesus was scourged. He was beaten. 
He was condemned to die on a cross. But they released Barabbas, a murderer. The Greek says he's more like a terrorist. The name means son of father, which represents all men. Jesus is on trial, and what we understand this morning is we've covered a lot of scripture, is that Jesus was on trial, and he took your place, and he took my place. Jesus not only took the place of Barabbas, he not only died in the place of a guilty man, Barabbas, he died in the place of all guilty men who accept him as king, who are Christians, who become sons of the Father. All of us, like Barabbas, were thieves, taking what is not our own, being our own God, and making our own decisions and breaking God's law. But Jesus took his place. Sinclair Ferguson says this, Without knowing it, the religious leaders and Pilate and Barabbas were all part of the tapestry of grace which God was weaving for sinners. Their actions spoke louder than words, louder than the cries of the crowds for Jesus' blood. Jesus was not dying for his own crimes, but for the crimes of others. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. He did not die for himself. He died for us. Wow. Doesn't it make you want to dance around the room? Doesn't it make you want to slap your knee? Woo! He died for me. He died for me. I'm a sinner. I do not deserve it. If I was in his place, I wouldn't have forgiven him and done that. But he did it for me. What a remarkable story that he would stand trial, that he would be silent, that he would face the cup of wrath that we all deserve so we could have everlasting life. He deserves to be praised today, church. He deserves to be our ultimate value that we get our identity from, that changes our conduct and our behavior and our thoughts and our attitudes. He deserves it. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.